Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at quite a lengthy text this morning. In the Sunday school, I've been, we've been going through a membership class. And the last two uh, weeks I left open for questions and answers and gospel conversations and that kind of thing. And uh, the class, that, uh, they're very quiet. And they didn't ask a lot of questions. So this morning, uh, since they didn't have questions, we covered this text. So they're going to get a double serving of Romans chapter 3. And so uh, what we discussed this morning when we were done, I asked them, would it be okay if I preached that message? And I think they all agreed, and no one objected to that. So you're going to get Romans chapter 3. And the title of this, if I were to title it, I, some people title sermons. I don't really get into that. I, uh, if I were to title this sermon, though, the title would be, We All Need the Gospel Because No One is Righteous. And I think that's a summary of what we're, we're going to cover this morning. And so we are in between books. Uh, I know we have Lamentations coming. Uh, I think in a few weeks Hunter will start Lamentations. And so as he asked me to fill in for him today, we were discussing what it was that I would, that I would cover. And so me being here for four or five years, I've kind of really just thought through what it is that where we've been over that period of time, not just in a sermon series, but also what we've covered and discussed in small groups and in Sunday school, and I kept landing on Romans chapter 3, uh, and so that's where we are today. So, um, also because of many conversations, I'll say that, many conversations that I've had, not only over the years here but uh, with the body, but also conversations that I've had and continue to have with people in the Christian community. I'm making, if you're not looking at me, I'm making quotations in the Christian community. Uh, I've considered this text would be very helpful. So there's two main, I'm going to start off by saying this, there's two main misunderstandings that I see that desperately need to be cleared up. And this passage here from Paul addresses both of those head on. Okay? Here they are. Number one is the first main misunderstanding is that God granted to salvation to people differently in the Old Testament than He does those who are under the New Covenant in the New Testament. That's the misunderstanding that I think needs to be cleared up, and Paul's going to be extremely clear as we read. He's going to clear that up for us. Number two, the second misunderstanding is that those on our side of the cross, the New Covenant people... Um, we are saved by having, people believe that we're saved by having some religious experience and then living a life after that religious experience where we do more good than bad. That's a misunderstanding in the Christian community. I think we need to clear that up, okay? So before we get into the text and address these misunderstandings, I want you to, uh, I wanna, I want you to see another problem that I see and it's a very big one. And that the, prob the problem is people think that they are inherently good. That's a big problem. I recently read a book where a pastor says he d dislikes the fact that people should think that they should change their behavior around him. He said that when people find out he's a pastor, they often have to apologize to him about the language they've used in front of him or the things they may have done in his presence. And he says... I'm. I'm frustrated with that because they act as though they're accountable to me. And we're not accountable to pastors. Well, I will say I clear that up. We as membership place ourselves under the accountability 
of leadership, that yes, but we are not accountable to people. We are accountable ultimately to God because it is God who sees all and it is God who knows all. And so this pastor is no different than anyone in the fact that we all share in the same condition. And that condition is no one is righteous. Not even this famous pastor. And we all desperately need a Savior. And Paul shows us this here in Romans chapter 3. So you ready to read it with me? I started by saying I'm going to cover uh, chapter 3 verses 1 through 20. That grew to Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. I was texting with Stoney this morning because he was going to put it on the slides. I told him if I didn't watch it, I'll end up in chapter 10. But I'm going to stop in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 24, I promise. So let's read with your Bibles open. I, w- I am reading from the NIV translation. There are lots of good English translation. The NIV is one of them. King James, New King James, NASB. Uh, ESV, you name it. So don't let me, don't let this be confusing. But I think Stoney has the uh, passage on the screen in the translation that I'm using, um, if I'm correct. Yes. So it says this: What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust, bringing His wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. Verse 9, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin, as it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. 
This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, today, expose our sinful hearts that we still need a Savior. Father, as we've read Your Word, Father, let it show us that You are God and we are not. Father, let us not just be left in our distress, not be left in our sin, but be also reminded that we've been saved by grace through faith for those here who are in Jesus Christ. And let that reminder help us to live. Let that reminder help us to risk. Let that reminder help us to obey. Let that reminder help us to act. Let that reminder help us to speak. Let that reminder help us to praise. Father, set our minds on You. In Jesus' name, Amen. On what we just read, some of you may be familiar with a famous pastor. He's no longer pastoring. His name is John Piper. He's written a lot of books. Um, matter of fact, a friend of mine a few Sundays ago sent me a quote from a book. And, um, and I love the quote. And so I was standing up here and I just bought it on Amazon real quick. And two or three days later, I got it in the mail and it was that thick by John Piper, a book called Providence. I'd have known it was 711 pages. I don't know if I'd have bought it. Cause, um, but, I, but I love him, and I, I love the quote, so I'm going to try to plow through that. But John Piper says, he also had a ministry, has a ministry called Desiring God. And in a devotion that he wrote called All Jews and Gentiles Are Under Sin, he says this, and I quote, uh, he's speaking of what we just read. Romans 3, verses 1 through 24, he says, I quote, this is not a popular message, understandably. It is no more popular than the doctor's words, your tumor is malignant. But it is vastly more hopeful. Your tumor is malignant may or may not be hopeful news because the doctor may or may not have a cure for your cancer. But you are under the power of sin and a child of wrath always has a cure. This is what the book of Romans and what Christianity and the Bible are all about. And like a great teacher here of what we just read, Paul always anticipates objections. These questions that he raises, these four questions and what, what we just read, it, what, what he raises places God's character in view, and when he does so, Paul defends it. God's character is on display, it's in view, and after asking these questions, God quickly defends the characters of God, character of God. So what are these questions? As we read through that, through them, we're going to go through them uh, one by one, and there's four. Question number one is, what advantage does the Jews have? So did the Jews have an advantage. Did God's chosen Israel have an advantage? And Paul says, yes, they did. But what advantage was it? What advantage did they have? Was that advantage salvific in nature? 
Was it a a sure thing that being a Jew would save you? Paul says, this is their advantage they had. This alone. They were entrusted with the very words of God. And although this is a huge advantage, this advantage was not a guarantee of salvation. And I know many atheists, we've talked about this in Sunday school class, but I've, I've seen many. I know many atheists who have read the Bible and can even quote it. Does that save them? No. No. So just because the Jews had the inspired, revealed Word of God did not mean that they would all be saved. So the Jews did have God's special revelation. And they should have understood the amazing privileges that brought them. And what other, the question is, what other group of people had them so that they could know the true God? None of them. They had it. But it was no guarantee of their salvation because they had the Scriptures. So the Jews had God's special revelation, which included revelation about God's character, the promises of God, which included the coming Messiah. But they were not simply saved by being Jewish. Let's see what God's Word says about that. If that confuses you, let's open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. And Hebrews, if you know anything about Hebrews, Hebrews is an exposition or a commentary of all of the Old Testament. Everything that the, the Jew knew, they were taught, the scriptures that they had, Hebrews exposes it in light of the coming Messiah. Okay? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never be by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices were an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for Me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It's written about me on your scroll. I have come come to do your will, my God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Although they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. Hang with me. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. 
But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So, the sacrifices in the Jewish system was only a foreshadowing of the once-for-all atonement of the coming Messiah. They were not the thing. They were pointing to the thing. The thing being Jesus. Their religious system didn't save. It was a witness to them that God will save in the future. There needs to be bloodshed. There needs to be a high priest. There needs to be once for all atonement. Right? All of those things point to Jesus. It's a witness. None of these things are saving you, but I, God, will save you. So what you see is, you keep reading in Romans, Paul exposes this in more detail. In chapter 9, he says that not all Israel is Israel, but only the children of the promise. Only the people inside Israel had hope, but not all. Only those inside, the remnant, the children of the promise in Israel who believed that what they were doing was not the thing, but God would produce the thing even though they didn't understand what that would look like. They simply lived by faith. Follow me? Question number two. Does Jewish unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? This is one question that Paul asks here in verses 3 and 4. We're back to Romans 3 again, sorry. Does Jewish unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? The short answer is, of course not. This is like saying, if, since people are unrighteous, then God's unrighteous. And that is ridiculous. Makes no sense. So Paul here, when you think about it, Paul can't imagine the idea of God being unfaithful. He can't. He can't even, can't even fathom the idea of God being unfaithful. And also he's saying God's faithfulness is not contingent upon Israel's response. Just because they fail, just because they sin, just because they leave, doesn't mean that God leaves. Doesn't mean that God's unfaithful. Doesn't mean that God's unrighteous. That's not the character of God. Don't look at the sinful, wicked people of God to understand the character of God. Paul says here in verse 4, Let God be true even though everyone is a liar. Just because there's sin in the world doesn't mean God's sinful. Just because we're liars doesn't mean He is. Uh, a guy I respect, he's a pastor, his name is Tony Merida. He says this, If every human being who ever lived declared that God is faithless, God would be found true and every man who testified against Him would be found out a liar. God would win the verdict when the world goes on trial. He is true. He is faithful. We should take great comfort in the fact that God is faithful. Take comfort in the fact that He is true and His Word is entirely trustworthy. So does Jewish unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Of course not. That's ridiculous. 
Question number three. Are we doing God a favor by sinning? This is verses 5 through 8. Essentially, that's what, that, that's what he's raising there. Are we doing God a favor by sinning? Sounds crazy to say it out, out loud. No. These three verses are similar to the question Paul raises later in chapter 6 where he says, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound or grace may multiply? His answer there too is certainly not. So attempting to show God's glory by sinning is outrageous, obviously, never to be justified. And God is the judge and we should not put the Lord to the test. We aren't helping God show His grace by sinning. As sinners, we sin and display twisted behavior, but for someone to think like this shows twisted reasoning. We are. We're all twisted. Our, when we're fallen, which we are, we're fall, we have fallen emotions. We have fallen flesh. We have fallen reasoning. Some may say, let us sin more because God covers our sin by His grace. Let's let God show off by sinning. Let's let God show Himself to be an awesome, loving, all-grace-filling all God. Let's let Him show that grace off by being sinful. Because the more we sin, the more He shows His grace. No. Absolutely not. It's ridiculous, sinful, wicked, twisted reasoning. We, sh we don't reason like that. Question number four. Paul asks, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. So he says here that there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. We're all under the power of sin. You follow me? Their advantage is they have the Scriptures. There's no guaranteed salvation. They're in the same condition we are. The next eight verses from 10 to 18 are quotes. If you look down at 10 to 18, there's no one righteous, no one seeks God, all those boom, 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 back to back to back. All of those are a compilation from Psalms, Leviticus, and Isaiah. Isn't that interesting? Scriptures that they had. Scriptures that they, the Jews, memorized. Scriptures that they knew. Yet when Jesus came, what did people say? We don't, we don't need you. We're good because we're children of Abraham. But yet the, the, the Scripture that they had that pointed to Him, they rejected. Isn't that ironic? Ironic? But that's what sinful, sinful people do. We're blind. We're deceived. And we're blind, as blind and deceived as the Jews. There's no different. We're in the same condition and the only thing He's given them is, is God's Word. So, um, this brings us back to where we started. Remember the two misunderstandings I said I see in the church. Just think back to that. The first one is that even in the church, some believe God dealt with Israel or the Jews differently as He does today in the New Covenant. This is not so at all. It's not so at all. Everyone that has ever lived has only had one remedy for their sin. There he is and has always been one way to be made right and reconciled to God. 
whether you're Jew, Gentile, American, Chinese, Egyptian, Canadian, wherever you're from, you have only one remedy, but we all have the same condition. And that remedy is through trusting alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. How are we saved? Think about it. I asked that in Sunday school. How are we saved? We are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus. How is a Jew saved? By grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus. Same people, same problem, same condition, same remedy. A Jew was saved in trusting that God would fulfill His promises in the future, pardon their sin once and for all. Did they know how that would happen? No. No, they did not. But they believed God would fulfill His promises and that He would do it, and it would have to come from God and not anything that they can do of themselves. Did they know about Jesus? No. Same condition, same remedy, same God. We're saved by grace through faith. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. Justification, here's what justification means. Justification is a legal right standing before a holy God. Justification. Some people, I've heard people say, is God looks at me just as I haven't sinned, just as, okay, justified, justification, or being declared just before a holy God has been and always will be by faith alone. The second misunderstanding, even in the church, is actually very scary if you don't watch it, it's dangerous. It's a slippery slope. And it says that to be made right before God, we must have some kind of experience and live a life beyond that with more good than bad. You know, the experience, you know, like pray a prayer, or walk an aisle, or get dunked in water. Then you, you know, then once you've done this, just live better. Just live better. Stop doing wrong. Start doing right. Because you've had this experience and you've showed you've tried to do better, then you're going to get God's seal of approval. That's dangerous. It's very dangerous. I'm asked the question, really? Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what the Bible teaches? I would say that's heresy. We're made to believe that there are good Christians. Have you ever said that? People have said that about me. Oh, he's a good Christian. No, well, I'm not. You shut your mouth. <laughs> Serious. There's no good Christians? What does that even mean? There's no such person. None of us do more good than bad ever. Even the good things we think we do are controlled by sinful motives. And we can't escape it. Think about it. Do you know how I know this? you know how I know people think this about Christianity? Because I've heard many people say that the reason why they don't go to church is because I've got to start living better. I can't be baptized or I can't do this. I've got to get my life right first. 
What? What lie are you believing? What do you mean? Who's told you Christianity is get your life right first? It's not possible. Where did they get this idea? Sadly, it's that they get them from Christian churches. Or at least the people who attend these Christian churches. Right? So if you believe this today and you call yourself a Christian, you should repent and trust Christ only. Those are hard words. But it's not about your works. You're, you're not safe if you think that's what the gospel is. That because you've had this experience, you can overcome in and of yourself a life that ultimately will please God. That's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. If you believe that, you're believing in your works. You're believing in your works. And what is the people? Uh, what happens to the people who believe in their works? In Matthew seven, Matthew seven verses twenty through twenty-two ish, somewhere in there, these people come to Jesus. And they say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? What does he say? He said, I'm going to look at them and say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me, for I never knew you. What is it that they appeal to God with? Their works. Don't you dare think you can stand before a holy God with anything you've done. Not one thing. Not one thing. Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments and, and condensed them to two. Here are the two. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. In this room of believers, I want you to ask yourself the question, how, who in this room could say that they obey these perfectly. Even when I read that, I, I crumble a little bit. That's heavy. I can't love the, my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I can't do that for five minutes. Love your neighbor as yourself? Who does that perfectly? None of us. Then how can anyone stand before a holy God? I'm assuming we think there's going to be someone standing before a holy God, right? There's going to be people there in the end saved. Then how? How's that possible? By faith. We stand before a holy God before, because Christ can stand before a holy God. Well, Brent, are you saying that it doesn't matter how I live as a Christian? No, don't twist my words. Don't twist, twist my words uh, at all. We've already covered that. We're not to sin that grace may abound. You don't keep on sinning to display God's grace. A true believer hates sin and desires to please God. So don't twist my words. But if your faith is genuine, you will desire to obey and will, will appear, at least I'll say that, you will appear to be doing more good than bad. Because... That's only because for a genuine born-again believer in Christ, God is working in you and conforming you to the image of Jesus. So if God sees me, I'm in trouble. 
But if I'm hidden in Christ by faith and repentance, I'm safe. Safe as can be. In closing, let's reread and think through verses 20 through 24. Look down back at that. 20 through 24. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So it starts out by saying, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. It has to be apart from the law. The law is used as a mirror to expose our need of a Savior, to expose our sin. And once we realize that we are in need of a Savior, we don't take that mirror or that law to clean ourselves up or to fix our condition. We go to something else. It is truly a gift of God and the grace of God to expose our wickedness Expose the wickedness and the need for a Savior to His children because without that exposure, then we're dying in our sins. We see no need from Jesus. We will, we will do what we naturally do is to be, try to be better than everybody else. If I'm better than that guy, it's kind of like the story of if there's a bear chasing me, all I need to do is be faster than that guy right there. Right? I'll just be better than everybody else. I'll be fine. Surely, you know, I'll be okay. I'm better than these people, faster than those people. So the righteousness of God is apart from the law. To be righteous has to come from something other than the law. We can obey God enough to be declared righteous. Not even after we're saved. It's not works after, it's not works before. We cannot be made righteous in what we do. If you say you're trying to get to heaven... I ask people a lot, are you a Christian? Well, I'm trying to get to heaven. That person just cut the legs out of the gospel. It's spit in the face of Jesus. What do you mean you're trying to get to heaven? What about clinging to Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? Because you, you can try and fail. You're going to fail. Cling to Jesus. He's all you've got. If you're not found in Jesus, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Trust Him alone. The law condemns, and it is grace to God's people, like I said earlier, in exposing their need of a Savior. Let me ask you this. Do you see your need for a Savior today? Have you misunderstood the gospel? Yeah, I'll, I'll take Jesus, because I realize Jesus is a part of this equation, but there's things that's required of me. Jesus and my baptism and my effort and my life and all that, Jesus plus something, no, no, no. It's only Jesus. It always has been only Jesus. It always will be only Jesus. 
If we don't stand with His righteousness, His righteousness, we're in trouble. Did God's Word today as we read it speak to your sinful heart? God's Word spoke to my sinful heart and it still does. I need it every day. I need the gospel every day. Do you know I preach the gospel hundreds of times more to myself than I do to anybody else? I, w- I was asked, uh, maybe in Sunday school, maybe, yeah. Um, I think, anyway, I don't know who it was. What's an, application, what's an applicable way of spurring yourself on to sharing the gospel more? My answer was this. I share it to myself every day. And as I remind myself, my need for Jesus and His grace continuously, it spurs me on to tell others. Because they have the same need I have. It doesn't matter how you talk to me. It doesn't matter how you act. I'm not going to condemn you. You're not going to condemn me. I'm not worried about you. You shouldn't be worried about me. We should be worried about facing a holy God. And the only way we're going to stand righteous is to be hidden in Jesus. Not that we didn't cuss or drink or smoke or do all these. That's not Christianity at all. For people who think they are, they're going to find out one day they've been misled. They've been deceived. That is not Christianity. For those of you here that are hidden in Christ, I want to say this to you. Continue to trust in Him alone for salvation. And I want to think about this together. When we face God one day, we're going to face Him hidden in Christ. And when He sees His Son, when He sees His Son, because He's not seeing me, I'm hidden in Him. When He sees His Son in whom He is well pleased, He will say to Him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because if He sees me, He can't utter those words. But to His Son, who obeyed fully, through His grace and mercy, has taken me in through repentance and faith because I've clinged to the finished work of Jesus. What's credited to my account are the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, it's hard for me to say that out loud because that is a ridiculous thing to consider that I would be able to stand free, free of guilt, free of condemnation, free of judgment, free of wrath. Because when I consider my life, I consider my motives, I consider my mind, I consider my life, I deserve it all. I deserve not to be set free. None of us do. Never have been, never will be. No matter where we're from, no matter what language we speak, we all are in the same condition. And we're thankful that we all have the same hope. The only hope. There's only one way. Father, in a world that likes many ways, Father, help us to be bold and continue to be honest with people that there is only one way. And it's not because it's the way that we like. It's, not, it's because the way that we've been brought up. It's because it is the only way.
And Father, as we leave here today, help us to remember the gospel of Jesus, that we were once rebel sinners, and at the right time, God the Son took on flesh. He lived the perfect life, perfectly obedient, so that when He died on the cross and He rose on the third day, His life stood as the perfect substitute for ours. And that only getting Jesus comes by faith. And not by works, not by efforts, not by obedience. If we could obey fully, Jesus wouldn't have had to do so. But we don't. But Father, knowing the gospel, knowing that we're saved by grace through faith, knowing that we've been justified by a holy God, don't let our hearts and minds think we can live the way we want. Let our hearts and minds be shaped to live in a way that pleases God the Son. Pleases God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, because without You we are nothing. Without You we are hopeless. Go with us today with that reminder. But Father, don't let us be uh, wandering our guilt. Don't let us navel gaze. Don't let us consider our life too much. Let us look to the Son. And when we see the Son and His obedience, Father, let our hearts be reminded that we are free indeed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.